Well, hey, welcome here. Good to see you. Are you awake? Yeah, that's good. Welcome to those of you joining us at the other campuses. You're going to need your Bibles open. We are carrying on. You should know that by now. We're in a long series through the book of 1 Peter. We're coming near the end. We are in chapter 5, and we're going to be talking about the first five verses of 1 Peter chapter 5. And it's an interesting text. And some of you, as you look at it, you might wonder, what is in this text for me? Because the text specifically addresses a group of people called the elders in the church. And you're like, well, maybe this text should just be cut out and given to the elders, and they can deal with it, and the rest of us can move on to read other stuff. But I've been praying that the Lord would have something to say to each one of us this weekend as we look at the, uh, the role of leadership. Uh, one of the things I love to do is to read uh, leadership books uh, in every sphere, both political, uh, military, business leaders, and then obviously spiritual and church leaders, and particularly loving to read the biographies of great men and women who have gone before us and the things that we can learn from their lives. And some of them I circle back around to. I've got my favorites over the years. Uh, one of the characters that I really, really like is a guy named Winston Churchill. Don't know if you ever heard of him. Uh, probably one of the most significant leaders in the 20th century, hands down. And looking at his life and his work and his leadership, uh, he was known for his bulldog tenacity and his amazing uh, enthusiasm that could rally people around him. Uh, he was known for his quick wit, uh, for his b ability to rally people through his long speeches and also uh, his sharp tongue with which he could shut down his opponents. Uh, he, would, uh, he was also known for a, a lot of idiosyncrasies and quirks, which kind of makes him human to us, right? Uh, I don't know whether you know this or not, but he dictated literally thousands of memos and letters and speeches while sitting in the bathtub with a cup of scotch in one hand and a cigar in the other, and then dictating to some secretary sitting outside the bathroom door. Uh, the story's told on one occasion, he's in the tub, and President Roosevelt's supposed to be coming to visit, and he arrived early, unexpectedly, and there's a knock on the door saying, the president is here, he got here early, he's actually in the hallway. Churchill jumped out of the tub, wrapped a towel around him, went to the door, and as he grabbed the door handle, the towel accidentally slipped off. And with his quick wit, he said, Mr. President, you can see I have nothing to hide from you. So he was known for his long speeches. Probably his most famous was the never give up, never, 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 never give up speech. It galvanized the UK when they were coming under attack by the Nazi uh, armies. Uh, his sharp tongue was famous and there's a lot of quips. Uh, the love lost between him, no love lost between him and Lady Nancy Astor. She was the first elected woman elected to British Parliament and they did not like each other. On one occasion, they were at a state dinner, and he had apparently had too much to drink, and she said to him, uh, Sir Winston, you are drunk. I find you disgusting. To which he replied, you are right, Lady Astor. I am drunk, but you are ugly. <laughs> and in the morning, I shall be sober. <laughs> yeah, it takes a moment. On another occasion, she said to him, you know what, if you were my husband, I would poison your tea. To which he immediately replied, if I was your husband, I would drink that tea. <laughs> so we all know that leadership matters in every field of life, whether you're talking family at the microcosm uh, of organizing a household and a home or the church or the academy, the school, the community, the nation. As someone has said, everything rises and falls on leadership. And so the next chunk that we're jumping into, Peter talks to leaders and he talks to followers. 
Now, just remind yourself, we've just come off a chapter and a half, and we took four weeks through that chapter and a half dealing with our response to suffering. And now he addresses those who will lead in these stressful times of suffering. So chapter five, the first five verses read like this. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So I mentioned earlier in that first glance, you might look at that and wonder, well, why should this text matter to the majority of us? Is it not written to the leaders in the church, the elders, let them deal with it. It doesn't apply to everybody, but stay with me because there are some things that we need to understand, the biblical principles that undergird this text and are essential to the harmony and the unity and the effectiveness of church ministry. So what Peter is going to say in one key thought is basically this, that godly leadership matters, especially in trying times. That godly leadership matters, especially in coming out of this last chapter and a half, during these times of suffering that these people were going into. So we're going to look at it from five angles. We're going to look at the leadership challenge, the leadership assumption, the leadership assignment, the leadership attitude, and finally, the limitations of leadership. They're all implied in this text. So let's jump in. Got a lot of coverage. Uh, The leadership challenge, first and foremost. Leadership is a daunting task at any moment in time but especially in times of crisis. So if you know, and I'll just piggyback onto Churchill stories again, if you know his life, he came to power at the start of World War II and he followed, he replaced Neville Chamberlain, which historians say was one of the weaker prime ministers in UK history. At all costs, Chamberlain did not want to go to war. And he at all cost wanted to appease Hitler. He wanted to negotiate peace. And France had fallen, Poland had fallen, Italy had fallen. But Chamberlain believed that there was no way Nazi Germany would ever drop a bomb in the UK. And so he wanted to negotiate for peace. And Churchill is famous for saying, you cannot negotiate with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. So he came to power at a very critical time. And in this context, Peter is talking about the suffering and the times of persecution and pressure that the church is going to come up against. And he has just said last weekend, judgment begins at the house of God. That the pruning and the refining and the purifying work of the Spirit begins first with God's people. And I think it catapults him into the very next thought. And if God is going to begin with his church, he is first and foremost going to begin with the leaders of his church. Now, there's several times in the Old Testament, and if we had the time to trace the history, we could literally spend hours going through texts where God takes on the shepherds of his people in the Old Testament when they're failing to do their jobs. One of the most pointed is Ezekiel 34 when it says, "'Aw, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep?' The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. 
So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. Behold, I, this is the Lord speaking, I am against the shepherds. It's a very sobering text. Uh, about three chapters there, Ezekiel 34 through 36, God comes after the leaders of the church, and in essence, he says, you're not doing your job, so I am going to step in, and I will actually come and shepherd my people myself. I'll replace their hard hearts, their heart of stone with a heart of flesh. I'll make a new covenant with them. I am going to be the great shepherd over my sheep because you're not doing your job. As you get into the New Testament, this theme is picked up as well, dealing with leaders and the responsibility of those who lead and teach and preach. And James 3 is one of the most pointed when it says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That's a sober word for anyone who would want to stand and teach God's people. And so you can see Peter's train of thought. God is going to purify his people. Judgment's beginning at the house of God. So let's talk to the leaders, the leaders first. Let's talk to the elders. That's the leadership challenge. But next we see the leadership assumption. And I say that because Peter gives no explanation of who these men were or how they were appointed. He just simply addresses the elders of the church. And he assumes, and we assume by reading it, that these people knew who the elders were and what they were called to do. But let's take a moment and dig in. Elders, just quick biblical history. As God organizes the people of God back in the Old Testament, they're coming out of Egypt. The new nation is being formed. They're wandering in the desert. And, and God is basically giving them the constitution and bylaws, the articles of confederation for a new state. And in Exodus 18, Moses is standing as judge over the people, and they come to him with all their problems. And his father-in-law shows up and says, Jethro, what you're doing, Jethro is the father-in-law, Moses, what you're doing is not a good thing. Now, every guy loves to hear his father-in-law say something like that. What you're doing is not good, son-in-law. And he says to him, here's what I suggest. Would you appoint leaders over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens and let them judge the, the, the matters that the people bring to you? And then in the greater matters, they can come to you. And if you try to do it on your own, you're going to wear yourself out and you're going to frustrate the people. So appoint many, many leaders, a plurality of leadership. Later in the book of Numbers, he is told specifically to appoint a council of 70 so take 70 of those leaders and appoint them, and it is the precursor to what is called later the Sanhedrin, and you'll see that in the New Testament. The Sanhedrin was a group of 70 plus one, 70 leaders plus the high priest, and effectively they became the supreme court in Israel. All the major decisions, all the laws, the religious and the ceremonial law, the moral law were brought before the Sanhedrin for their ruling. So leadership is identified and called out in the Old Testament, the elders in the Old Testament. Now fast forward to the early church, the New Testament church. We're now living in the New Testament era, and there are two key offices in the church, elder and deacon. Elder and deacon. Those are the two key offices in the New Testament. Now just a quick comment on that word elder. Because the word elder is used in two different ways in the New Testament. And you can tell which way it's being used by the context. It's used in reference to age. And it's used in reference to an office. So sometimes elder simply means older. Sometimes that's literally what it means. The elder one, the older one. So the prodigal son, the younger son, and the elder brother, the older brother. Or Titus 2 is another example. Older men... 
are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and their children. So sometimes elder just means older. But in other cases, elder refers to an office in the church at least 16 times. It refers to a specific group of leaders. The very first mention is in Acts 11. So the church at Antioch in Acts 11 is sending a special offering to the church at Jerusalem. And it says this, so the disciples determined to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. There was a famine in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The very first reference to elders. And we have no clue how they got established. You go back to Acts 2 and 4, the apostles are leading the church in Jerusalem. And somewhere between Acts 2 and 4 and Acts 11, the apostles now have gone out on ministry all around the world, and to replace them, the Jerusalem church has appointed elders. We don't know how. We don't know what the process was. All we know is that they existed by Acts chapter 11. The next dimension that we see uh, chronologically would be in James. James chapter 14 says, Is any among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. An important ministry of the elders of the church is to pray with people for healing. So our council of elders here at Northview meets monthly during the school year. So we meet every month. July we take off and August we're on a retreat. So we meet 11 times a year. But every month when we're meeting during the school year, a very important part of what we do, every meeting starts with a prayer time. And at every meeting that we have, it is an open invitation to anyone in the church to come with their prayer concerns. And every month there are individuals who come and we break up in little groups with elders and these people coming in obedience to James chapter 5 that says, if you're sick, go to the elders, let them anoint you with oil and pray for you. So it's one of the things that we do. But the first official appointment, when we finally begin to see how it was done comes at the end of Paul's first missionary journey in Acts 14. So he has visited all these churches, planted all these churches, then he's going back around visiting them. And he says in verse, uh, chapter 14, 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then one more. When Paul is writing to young Titus, a protege of his, he says to him, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, that's four quick references. There's 16. We don't have time to go through all 16. But you've got enough data there that you can see the pattern that emerges in the New Testament. That when a new church is started... When a church is planted, when it is established, when it is begun, one of the key factors in the early days of the life of that church is to identify local leaders, local leaders from within that congregation who will serve as elders in the church. Now, some of you, I can see it on your face, it's a, you're glazed over already, why all this history? Especially those of you watching at the other campuses. I can see through this camera, I can see that you're glazed over. Wake up. Why all this history? Well, because Peter just assumes that his readers understood this. And so it's worth a quick mention that there is no one-size-fits-all blueprint for church governance given to us in the New Testament. You need to note that. 
And there are three major forms of ecclesiology or polity in the, the big picture capital C church. There is Presbyterian leadership, Episcopalian leadership, and congregational or Baptistic type leadership. Presbyterian is led by a synod of elders over a region. Episcopalian is what the Catholics and the Anglicans have. They appoint bishops over various congregations in their, in their parish. And then congregational and slash Baptistic is the independent church, and it's very much like what we have at Northview. Where we're an independent church, we are not subject to the authority of any outside bishop telling us what we should do. We appoint our own internal elders, our own internal leaders. And I mention that because even within those models, there are several variations of how churches do eldering, if you will. So every local church has to wrestle with scripture. But what we know is not up for grabs, regardless of the... Um, the, the polity or the structure, the organizational chart that you have, what is not up for grabs is the leadership assignment. So we look at that next. There is a twofold assignment. I appeal to you as a fellow elder, as a witness of Christ's suffering, and as a sharer in the coming glory, do your job. And verse 2, it says what that job is. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Shepherd and oversee. Two functions. There is a governance role and there's a watch care, a shepherding, caring role. So every local church has to figure out how those roles are going to be defined and they're both critical. Because every local church needs good governance. We need good policies and procedures. We need to agree. How do we make decisions around this place? And so we agree upon that, and we write policies, and then we live by those. And every local church also needs to ensure that the sheep are cared for. And so the caring and the teaching and the guiding ministry of church leadership is critical. But it is also fraught with challenges and a lot of assumptions. And I'll just dive in here, because some people read a text like this, and they say, there it is, right there in black and white. It's in my Bible. It is the pastor's and the elder's responsibility to meet all my needs. I'm a sheep and you're the shepherd, so you must care for me. But as you read the entire New Testament on this topic, you will see that a better way of seeing the role of the shepherd is that the leaders are to ensure that the sheep are well cared for, that they are protected, that they are nurtured, but it is not that the shepherd does that work alone. And Ephesians 4 is the clearest. He gave leadership gifts to the church. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, there's our word, the shepherds and teachers. And what did he give them to do? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. For the building up of the body until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What that text would tell us is the primary work of church leadership is to call everyone to maturity so that they can care for themselves and care for, shepherd one another. That's why all the one another's of the New Testament are so critical. Love one another, serve one another, care for one another, pray for one another, support one another. Churches that demand that their pastors and elders do all the work of the ministry will inevitably be frustrated with their leaders 
and ultimately disappointed with their leaders because there is no possible way that one pastor or a small group of elders can possibly meet all the needs of the people in the congregation, right? Unless the church is very, very small. And maybe that explains why the vast majority of churches in Canada, over 80% of the churches in Canada, are less than 100 people. Because one leader can know the needs of 80 to 90 people and can care for them. And if the congregation demands that the pastors or the elders meet all those needs, the church cannot grow larger. Obviously, one leader can't personally care for everybody. I remember back in the day when we were just starting out to our first pastoral assignment, uh, newlyweds, we were doing a, a, an associate pastorate back in Ontario in a little Baptist church, and one of my assignments given to me as this, like, honestly, 23-year-old kid was to go visit on a monthly basis a group of the shut-ins from our church. They were mainly seniors, and some of them were sick. They couldn't get out to church, and so someone was going to visit them. It was my assignment on a monthly basis. One of those shut-ins was a woman named Ruby Hindley. Ruby was in her 90s. As she had no longer been able to get out of the house. She was locked in. And as I visited her on a monthly basis, this woman had more visitors than anybody I've ever seen. As you visit her with her, you would find out that on Tuesday, so-and-so came. On Wednesday, so-and-so came. On Thursday, there were three people. On Friday, but every time I visited her, I also heard, the church does not care about me. No one has visited me. And I'm like, Ruby, you just went the whole list. What she meant when no one had visited her was that Pastor Daryl, the lead pastor, had not been there. That's literally what she meant. The church doesn't care because Pastor Daryl, and you even, young Pastor Mark, aren't good enough. Pastor Daryl needs to come to my house. Or another example, a really great church planter, an Eritrean guy, an African guy. Their church was growing. It's a Canadian story. Amazing people coming in, coming to faith, being baptized. And then I heard as the church is reaching about 200 people, an amazing story in Canada that the pastor is resigning. And I'm like, why on earth are you resigning at this point in time? He was going back to a government job that he had in the early days. He was still going to pastor the church, but he was going to work this government job and volunteer for the church. And when I had the chance to meet with him, I'm like, why are you doing this? Now is not the time to resign. The story was this, in my culture, people think the pastor must do everything. And so the only way I can break that mentality is to resign and get a regular job and then volunteer my time, and now I can teach the flock to begin to care for one another. The leadership responsibility and the assignment to shepherd and to govern, to ensure that God's people are well-led and well-cared for. But the attitude is critical. And so he goes on to speak of the leadership attitude with a threefold challenge. And the first is this, that it should not be under compulsion. That's just very easy to understand. No arm twisted behind the back. It's not just who's got a pulse that can be in leadership, but you're willing. The role of a leader should be one that is desired and welcome. And secondly, he says, not for shameful or dishonest gain. It's, a, it's an interesting little phrase. And basically what he says is you should not get into leadership for money or for reputation. So Peter knew that there are some people who would aspire to leadership, they would aspire to power because of the reputation or the esteem that they think that that position of leadership would give them. They want to be seen and they want to be known. And we in North America are living in a day of the so-called celebrity pastor. Have you heard of it? We don't have any around here, but across North America, they, are, they exist. 
Uh, there's even a, a, a little funny website called Preachers and Sneakers. I don't know if any of you have seen it. Just look it up, Instagram or the website. They track these popular celebrity preachers who have like $1,000 sneakers, and they take funny pictures of them. Over the years, I've had the privilege to plan several conferences and to be sort of the front line's first phone call to speakers that we wanted to have come and share. And it was always a red flag for me when the first question coming back on the other end of the phone was this question, will there be an honorarium? In other words, am I going to be paid? And some were even more blunt than that. They would say, okay, I'll send you my contract. Here's what I charge to speak at your event. I need to fly first class. I need to stay in this level of a hotel. And I would like to be able to promote my book when I come to your conference. So discouraging. One of the most famous stories in the Old Testament is when King Balak hires Balaam to curse the children of God. Do you remember that story? The story of the talking donkey? So the children of Israel have come up to the border of Moab, and the king of Moab says, i got to get these people off my backyard. So he hires a prophet to curse them. And when Balaam goes to curse them, God puts words of blessing in his mouth. Three times in a row, he cannot curse these people. Instead, he blesses them. And Balak's like, what are you doing? I offered to pay you to curse these people. You're not getting paid. Go away. You're a useless prophet. But if you read the lines in the history and combine the New Testament with what it tells us about Balaam, Balaam wanted that money so badly that he figured a workaround. If God would not allow me to curse these people verbally, he got a different idea. And he goes to King Balak and he says, you know what? I can't curse them, but here's how you can take them out. All you need to do is send out your women to seduce these men. If you can win them over through sexual favors, you can break down the nation of Israel. And that's exactly what happens. And so in 2 Peter, Peter talks about false teachers. And he talks about those who have followed the way of Balaam. Balaam, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression, a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. He wanted to earn money. God wouldn't allow him to curse, so he did a workaround. Finally, the text says, not domineering, but as examples. So much that we could say here, but leadership in any setting, in the home, in the church, in the nation, leadership that domineers is not biblical leadership. And the key example is Jesus himself. Jesus in the upper room, the night that he would be betrayed, this long chunk from chapter 13 on through the Gospel of John, where Jesus is the one who gets up and takes the towel and the basin to wash the dirty feet of his disciples. They had booked this upper room, but there was no servant that came with the room who would normally do that job, and none of the disciples took it upon themselves to take the role of the servant. So Jesus takes the towel and the basin and he washes their feet and he says, I've given you this as an example that you would serve like I've served you. Uh, on another occasion, he's talking to the boys and he heard them arguing on the way. And it says in Mark 9, on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So Jesus sits them down and he calls the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And unfortunately, throughout the history of the church, there have been way too many stories of church leaders who are power-hungry and narcissistic and authoritarian in their leadership. 
And what's most amazing is that Christian people have been willing to follow them. I don't have time to go into the examples. There are so many examples in North America right now. If you've not heard the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, I'd encourage you to listen to it. It's one story and one example. But every text comes with a set of implications. And before we close, we've got to take note of this last one, and this is implied, the leadership limitations. It's not stated directly, but it is certainly implied, and there are some lessons in this text about the limitations of leadership. And number one is this, first and most important, these sheep are not your sheep. These sheep belong to God. Notice it says there, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, shepherd who? The flock of God. Not your sheep, they're God's sheep. You are an under-shepherd. You are a steward. These people are given to you as a trust. So you shepherd them. You are not the capital S shepherd. You are not the chief shepherd. You're just a steward. So your authority is limited. You're an under-shepherd. Secondly, and critical, we must never forget this, that shepherds are sheep too. Every shepherd is a fallible, finite person who needs also to be shepherded and led and cared for. And it points us to the mutuality of the one another's of Scripture. That there are times when the shepherd needs to be cared for like a sheep. When the shepherd needs to rest at the feet of the Savior to be refreshed and encouraged and strengthened. There's the story of David who was sort of the epitome of the Old Testament shepherd. And at a time when his men were rising up against him, they lost the battle at Ziklag, and he was so discouraged. And the men are coming against him, and it says there, he encouraged himself in the Lord. The Lord had to strengthen him because David also was a sheep. Number three, it's not stated directly, but it is certainly understood, this is so important, that followership is voluntary. This is such a frustration. You see, if you're an employer... You have a lot of power over your employees because you can fire them, you can cut their pay, you can assign them, you can tell them to do what they want to do, and because you pay their check, you're in charge. But in the church, followership is voluntary. And Peter calls all of us to humble ourselves toward one another, and we'll pick that theme up next week. But it says here, all of you, humble yourselves toward one another to live in mutual submission and harmony. And and he gives a very specific challenge to the young among us. You who are younger, honor, submit to the elders. And you're like, why did he pick on the youth? Well, he also includes everybody when he says, all you all, is all y'all is what he says. Clothe yourselves, all of you. In our vernacular, it's all y'all with humility, but specifically the youth. Why? Probably because the young are more likely than the mature to push back against leadership. The young are the ones who are still testing the limits of authority. They want to make their mark in life. They want to be in charge. And so they tend, as youth, the arrogance of youth, to push against authority. But the bottom line is this. The pastors and elders and overseers have no ultimate authority over the life of the sheep in the flock. Because sheep have a will of their own. And if you've been in leadership at any point in your life, you will also know that sometimes sheep bite. And so a godly leader knows that they should entrust themselves to God and to God alone. Because people are fickle. 
And approval ratings rise and fall like the waves of the sea. And so the leader's security has to rest on the relationship that we share with the chief shepherd. Now, one other lesson. Leadership is limited from the sheep's point of view, but this may be the most important implication in the text, that the sheep must understand who the ultimate shepherd is. As sheep, we need to know that there is only one true shepherd. We need to know that. And it is not the pastor or the elders in a local church. They are not the ultimate shepherd. If you look to a human leader, no matter how gifted they are, how charismatic they are, how godly they are, how theologically astute they are, if you look to a human leader, ultimately at some point in time, they are going to disappoint you. They're going to let you down. They will not meet all of your expectations. And so if we as sheep tie our spiritual well-being to some earthly leader, to some individual, we are setting ourselves up for disappointment and disillusionment. If nothing else, that that leader eventually gets old and dies and they've left us alone or any other kind of failure. And so the principle is this, that we should never look to an under-shepherd for something that only the chief shepherd can supply. Never ever look to the under-shepherd for something that only the chief shepherd. So godly leadership matters. That's what the text tells us, especially in challenging times. And we're living in days when to be in leadership in North America, and I think across the West, and maybe even around the world, to be in leadership is to be subject immediately to suspicion and critique. That is sort of the culture that we live in. And increasingly, that culture of caustic leadership mistrust has found its way into the church as well. And friends, I need to tell you, it's bad. Just thought I'd throw that in there. So brothers and sisters, I need to appeal to you as one of your pastors, but I also need to appeal to you as a brother in Christ, as a fellow sheep alongside of you that we are bound together. We are bound together by our love of Jesus Christ and by our love for his word and by our love for his people and by our love for his church expressed in the local church expressions of congregational life. And so the question is, can we clothe ourselves with humility first and foremost towards one another? Because no one in leadership will ever get every decision right every time. Do you know that? And so will we pray for and affirm those God has called into leadership? And you say, well, why does it matter? Well, why does it matter? I write to you, elect exiles spread throughout Pontus and Cappadocia and Bithynia, those regions of Asia Minor, this letter going to several churches. I'm writing to you, elect exiles, because the heat is beginning to turn up. And so in our time and in our place, in our culture, we need to be reminded that we too live in an alien land and that there is an enemy who would do everything in his power to steal and kill and destroy. And the quickest way to destroy us is to divide us. As Abraham Lincoln famously said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so just this week, I had a phone call with a friend, literally just this week. And his church is now navigating what we might call a legal divorce. One church is going to become two. And that's not a quick and easy process. You don't just do that overnight. 
because you have to register as a society, you have to get a charity number, you have to get approval by CRA, you have to register your society act, your constitution and bylaws. It takes many months. So this does not happen on a dime. Let's take one church and make it two overnight. It is a long drawn out process. And you ask the question, so why did this one church decide to become two? Was it a debate about the gender wars and the LGBTQ issue? Was it to do with some theological issue, the authority of scripture, the inerrancy of God's word? Was it to do with the deity of Christ and with baptism issues or maybe some theory about creation or end times? No, it wasn't. It was debate over COVID-19. And when I hear stories like that, I wonder, have we lost our image and our vision of the great shepherd of the sheep. You see, under shepherds come and go. Elders come and go. Pastors come and go. And leaders do not get every decision right every time, but what holds us together is that our Jesus Messiah is also the shepherd of our souls. And as we humble ourselves under him and before one another... Then we ask the question, can we do leadership and followership differently than the world around us does? And oh, by God's grace, I hope we can say yes. That we will do leadership and followership differently than the culture around us. Yeah, we've got tough decisions to make. Every week, tough decisions to make. But we do them led by the Spirit of God and bound together in unity and love and support and encouragement and humility. And why? Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I can't think of any other better way to close than to read the familiar and the powerful words to remind us of our great shepherd, the chief shepherd. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me at all of our campuses. Would you stand with me right now and read these out good and loud? We're going to read it slowly. We somehow tend when we're reading, we just want to rush ahead. We're going to read it a little slow, ponder these words, the chief shepherd of our soul. This is who we go to, not an earthly leader, but we say, as Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley, the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen? Let me pray with you. Lord Jesus, I pray for our congregation. And Lord, I pray for congregations across this great land and around the world. Father, for 2,000 years, we've been trying to get it right to do leadership and followership side by side in this great thing called the family of God. And there are many, many times we have not gotten it right but Lord, you have called us all to humble ourselves towards one another. You have called us to discern and to call out those from within us who will give leadership in the church. You've even given us the characteristics that we look for. Who should we appoint into these key leadership roles who can then give governance and shepherding 
to the church. And so, Lord God, I pray for the elders of our church. I pray for these godly men that you have appointed. They are not the shepherds of the flock. It's your flock. They govern and oversee your flock on your behalf. They serve us. And so, Lord, we pray for our elders. We pray that you would uphold them. We pray that you'd give them wisdom and strength in every decision that has to be done. And if it's just something as simple as putting together budgets and writing policies, or if it's praying over the sick, or if it's dealing with future vision, or asking by the Spirit of God, how can we reach more people in this community with the gospel of Jesus? God, would you fire them up by your Spirit? And then, Lord, I pray for every member and every attender of our church that we would together humble ourselves before one another, that we would care for one another, we would serve one another, we would pray for one another, that we would do the work of the body, that we would do the work of ministry, that as we rise to mature manhood, mature adulthood, maturity in our faith, that we would turn to those around us and say, how can I serve, how can I care, how can I love, how can I be a shepherd to my fellow sheep? Lord, give us the grace we need to live these kind of lives. We'll do it for your glory, and we know in that we find great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.